Morning, church. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to there. Um, as you do that, I just wanted to take one minute uh, just to thank this church body. So for, for those who are not aware, my wife gave birth to twin boys two months ago. Their names are Hudson and Mason. They're incredible. Um, and we knew when my wife got pregnant, we knew that this place would love us and support us well. We had no question about that. We're like, this is the place we need to be as we start this new season of our life. But man, we have been so overwhelmed um, by the love and support and the, um, just the care that we've received from this church body, from people from every side of the spectrum, from young to old to new um, to the church, to being at this church for a while. And I just, on behalf of my wife and I, just wanna say thank you, that this is a place where we feel loved. This is a place where, this is where God wants to have us because we feel we're cared for here. And so before you hear anything we say, anything else I say up here, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you um, for all of your support. Um, the, hopefully in a few weeks, the twins, you'll get to meet them. They'll be here in church service with my wife. But right now she's at home um, holding down the fort. So pray for her as well, because got two babies there with them. So um, again, so Second Corinthians chapter six, guys, we're gonna continue in our series there. Um, if you're like me, I came to faith when I was in college. I came to faith when I was a freshman in college. And it seems like most of my Christian life, I've been walking and taking steps and finding out that there have been subtle ways that my beliefs have become more cultural than they become biblical. That as I've walked with Jesus, I've and read his word and I've sit under preaching and I've been in community, I've recognized that there's a lot about what I believe to be true about Jesus, about Christianity, about the church that's more influenced by the culture than it is God's word. Here's, here's an example. Have any of you ever heard the phrase, you are safest when you're in the middle of God's will for your life? Yeah. I've heard that phrase growing up and I readily accepted it as true. It sounds pretty good, right? That like, yeah, of course, when you're in the middle of God's will for your life, then that's the best place to be. That's the safest you'll be. But what you do is when you think about that statement and peel back what it's actually saying is that behind that statement, you're saying that God, as you are obedient to him, is committed to your own comfort and your own prosperity. That if I'm, if for me to be safe is to be in God's will. But if you said that to the Apostle Paul, he would look at you with a blank stare. If you said that to the early Christians, he would look at you with a blank stare because their life was marked by persecution, their life was marked by suffering, and many of them lost their lives for the name of Christ. That doesn't sound like safety to me. It sounds like costly obedience. But maybe you've heard a, a different phrase. Maybe you heard the phrase that you know, God helps those who help themselves. Man, at one point in my life, I would have fought you over this. I would have fought you that that was in the Bible somewhere. I thought someone was quoting me a proverb and I would have gone to town with you. But the more you read scripture, you realize that the complete opposite is communicated. I mean, think about one of our central tenets of grace. Like grace completely blows up that idea that God helps those who help themselves. But because of the culture that we live in here in America, we believe that God is committed to our comfort and our prosperity and that those who have drive and ambition, God blesses those and those who are poor, it's because God hasn't blessed them in the same way as others. 
And so what we're going to see here is that that reality, that culture subtly, this undercurrent of culture that we live in, isn't just true for here right now in Charleston, South Carolina. This is true in every time period, in every culture that has ever existed. And it was true for the Corinthian church. You see, the Corinthian church, many of the problems that Paul has been addressing up to this point has been because they've adopted the value system of their day and have married it with their religion. That they've been viewing um, ministry and success in the gospel and leadership all through this lens, not that a lens that was shaped by the Bible, but lens that was shaped by the culture that they grew up in. And so what Paul's gonna do in this chapter for us, these 10 verses, he's going to intentionally untangle where our culture and our beliefs got intertwined. It's kind of like after Thanksgiving, all of us, after Thanksgiving, we get ready for the best holiday there is, Christmas, right? So at once everything's cleaned up, we go upstairs or the attic, wherever you hold your tote. I'm gonna call it a tote of Christmas stuff. It's a plastic tote. So everybody has a tote where they hold their Christmas decorations. And we bring it down and start decorating the house and the yard with whatever decorations you have. And if you're like me, every year before, after I clean up for Christmas, I try to really wrap those cords, like the Christmas lights, really neatly. And I put them in this box because I know there's nothing worse than untangling Christmas lights. And I do it every year. And then we pull it out. And for whatever reason, there are, there's a party that happened in this box that I wasn't invited to. And you pull it out. You're like, how in the world did all these Christmas lights get tangled up? And so for the rest of that afternoon, you're just examining each cord. You're trying to pull them apart. They're getting tangled. And hopefully you can separate the cords from each other. And in some way, this is what Paul is going to do for for us in this passage. He's gonna untangle some views that we actually might hold. Because the Corinthian culture, what they valued is not very different than what we value here in our culture today. So I think you'll see a good bit of overlap there. Um, Would you pray with me as we get into God's word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity um, to gather as a church, to gather as a family, people who have been called out and redeemed by you. God, we thank you that we have much in common in Jesus, that because of Jesus, we can be united together, that because of his blood, we can be um, forgiven and made new. God, I pray that this church and the many churches here this morning that are preaching the gospel, I pray that we would be shaped by your word, I pray that even when it rubs up against us in, in areas that we, don't, that, that we don't like, I pray that we would submit to it. I pray that we would see it as good for our souls. So God, over these next few minutes, as we look in your word, I pray that it shapes us and I pray that it grows us in ways um, that you have um, determined it to do. Pray all these things in Christ's name. So chapter six, guys, if you remember... Last week, Steve taught, finished out chapter five. And in chapter five, it is one of my all-time favorite passages in the world because I think in it is the greatest message of all time. It's the message that you can be made new because of Jesus. That Jesus stood in your place so that you might stand in Jesus's place. That he became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul lays out his message of reconciliation that we can be reconciled, put in right relationship with God, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because God has put our sin upon Jesus. And not only that, he commissions those who have been reconciled by God to then take that message and to take it to the ends of the world. That God's plan in redemption is to use his reconciled, redeemed people to take that message and appeal and urge others to accept it. 
that this is how the elect comes to faith through God's people going out and sharing this message. And so what we're going to see here in these first two verses, I actually think they're really connected to to chapter five is Paul's application from the message that he just shared. It says, working together with him, with him being God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That up to, so Paul at this point right here, he's not wasting any time at all. He is urging these Corinthians to not receive the grace of God in vain. Now that might be, be odd to you because you're saying that he's speaking to a church. So why would, wouldn't this church already be reconciled to God? But their actions up to this point, their ability to view Paul in a bad light and side with the false teachers, their ability um, to begin to overvalue the systems of the day kind of give Paul a pause and make him consider that maybe they fully haven't been reconciled to God. So he takes this moment and appeals to them and urges them that the message that he just laid out is for them. And he finds his confidence in this by communicating that he is a co-worker, co-laborer with God. So he says, working together with him. That the reason Paul can stand up and have any confidence in what he says is because God has allowed him to do it. That God has invited him into the work. When Paul speaks, it's not upon his own authority. It's upon the authority that God gives him. And so as a co-worker and a co-laborer of Christ, Paul begins to urge and appeal these Corinthians to become reconciled to God. And this is in line with all that Paul has been lining up to this point where he's been defending his apostolic ministry to where he said again that my authority when I speak is not of my own, it's of God that's given to me, that God appointed him, that God sent him to be a messenger of reconciliation to these people. And what he does is he appeals that they would not receive the grace of God in vain. And within context, this grace of God is this message of reconciliation that he just expounded upon in the verses prior. That he is so concerned, I hope you feel this in Paul, that he is so concerned that there are people within this church that are Christian by name that have not been put in right relationship with God. That he is so concerned that there are people within this church who are walking around thinking that they're in right relationship with God, yet have fully never been transformed by that word that maybe at some point they've agreed to the facts. I mean, they were there when the church was birthed. They were there when we see an explosive growth. Maybe they agreed to the facts, but for whatever reason, this message of the reconciling God never worked its way into their bones to where they've shown any visible evidence of a life transformed. And so Paul is calling them, he's calling them to not receive this grace in vain. In my line of work, unfortunately, you see this a good bit. Within student ministry and college ministry, you see children who are born into Christian homes, who from a very young age are prayed over, who are taught the gospel, who are whose parents and the community they live in display the goodness of the gospel into their life. And they might even at one point in their life say, I believe that. But then for whatever reason, as they escape high school, as they go to college, the value system of the world just pulls them away. And and Paul's looking at that and saying, do not be like that. Do not get pulled away. Do not accept the grace of God in vain. I mean, every morning on Sunday morning, we pray for a nation that has no access to the gospel. Yet here in America, we have opportunities every single day to accept the grace of God, 
Do not accept that in vain. That's what Paul's saying. He said, do not turn away from this message. And what he does is he grounds this appeal in Isaiah 49, verse eight. This is the, what he quotes here. He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. This favorable time could be also communicated as a point in time, that there was a time that God appointed for salvation. And so he makes, he grounds it in this appeal. And he, I think he does this because he sees resemblance between his ministry and Isaiah's ministry. We don't have time to go to um, chapter 49, um, but in the beginning of chapter 49, the first six verses, Isaiah is laying out his credentials for ministry. This is where he was appointed, um, called out in the womb to be um, a prophet of God. He's called a servant and a mouthpiece of God. He's, he is described as an arrow, as a mouthpiece of God to take his message, God's message to God's people. Yet during this time, Isaiah was preaching this message of a future restoration of God's people, this incredible message. Yet the people dismissed him. He was met with a disappointing response. Yet later in that passage, God commends his ministry and gives confidence that one day God will make all things right. That this moment that Isaiah has been preaching up to this point is going to come to a head. And what Paul is saying is that this message that Isaiah preached of a future restoration has now come to head because of Jesus Christ. That we do not have to wait anymore. That the day of salvation is here because Jesus has resurrected from the grave. That Jesus took upon our sin. He made him sin who knew no sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. That this moment has happened. So do not wait any longer. And he, he appeals to them. He's um, just as God has raised up Isaiah to speak to his people in the past. God has raised up Paul to speak this message. It's the same message, just different time periods. And he's, he's, as he's quoting this, he's, he's saying salvation is here. There's an urgency to him. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the appointed time for you to accept this salvation, for you to become a new creation. He said, behold, again, now is the day of salvation. There's an urgency behind God's word. I don't know for, for those of you who are, who've been here for this, this series or have been with us for any period of time, I know that every single week, someone in this pulpit shares the good news of who Jesus is. Last week, Steve walked through chapter five on how you can be made right with God. If that struck a chord with you, if God spoke to you in a unique way in that moment, and you did not move yourself to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I just want to appeal and urge you to do that today. That today is the day of salvation that God has appointed. That you can be brought into right relationship with God, not because of anything you've done, but because of all of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so now, Paul continues into his, after he urges and appeals for these people that he loved to be reconciled to him, he now shifts in his argument. In verse three, we see a shift in Paul's argument. Begin, he's already laid out this message, this message of reconciliation. But Paul is fearful, Paul's concerned that people are going to discredit the message because he does not align up with what they perceive to be success. 
that they might discredit his message based on how they perceive Paul. You see, the false teachers at this time that have infiltrated the church are successful by every cultural metric. They're wealthy, they're well-spoken, they high, have high status, they're well-educated. All of these different things that this culture points to that says it's successful is what they are. But then you look at Paul and who do you see? You see a suffering, you see a suffering servant. And when they look at Paul's life, they see weakness because he suffered. They start to question, if God really appointed this man to be an apostle, then wouldn't God take better care of him? That wouldn't God like take up his end of the deal that as Paul steps into obedience, that there would be prosperity and comfort on the other side of that obedience? They argue that Paul suffered too much to be a real spirit-filled apostle. He's too weak. He's too unimpressive. The cultural attitudes of the day have colored the lens through which they've seen all of ministry, all of life, all of leadership, and all of the gospel. But what Paul is going to do in these next few verses is he's going to show them that the very reason that the very moment that he suffered, that the fact that he did suffer and go through hardships is actually God's stamp of approval on his ministry. That this is how we can know that Paul's ministry was authentic. He's going to flip upside down their cultural attitudes of what they believe uh, Christian ministry to be in these next few verses. So let's continue to read on. It says, verse three says, we put no obstacle, no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. I want you to, I want you to feel Paul's passion in this statement. He is so passionate about the Corinthians knowing the reconciling God that he says, oh, we have gone to every degree to make sure that there has been no barrier, no obstacle for you to hear and respond to the message of grace. He said that the term here that Paul uses to communicate offending, um, is, it's, it's the term that he used to, to offend people based off of their cultural sensibilities. So Paul has said, I've made it a point to not offend you. I've made it a point to remove all obstacles out of the way. I made it a point to not misstep or misspeak or do anything that would distract you from the main thing, which is that you need to be reconciled with God. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not speaking of the offensiveness of the gospel. He's not pulling the teeth out of the gospel. He's not watering it down at all. He's speaking of ways that we offend others and put up barriers to others how they might not hear the gospel. He's living his life in such a way that he doesn't distract people from the main thing. His life validates the message that he preached. He is so determined. He is so drawn by his conviction and passion for these people that he has laid down lots of his personal responsibility or parts of his personal freedoms so that others might not have any barriers in their way to hearing and seeing the gospel. It's the same term that he uses later in chapter eight so that his uh, ministry would not have any fault so that nobody would discredit his ministry. In chapter eight, Paul, after collecting money from the Corinthian church on the way to Jerusalem to, to deliver the money, he says he's taking companions with him so that nobody would find fault in the way that he handled that money. That he goes to every degree to make sure that there's, not a, there's nothing that would stick on him that there's nothing that someone can say to dismiss his message. Now, this is something I think we all need a sober reminder of, right? 
What about your life? What about your speech? What about your interactions with people, interactions with your family, interactions with coworkers? What about those things discredit the message that we hold? Or what about those things validate the message that we hold? What are things that we do or communicate that put up barriers to people actually seeing Jesus for who he truly is? Things that are trivial in the grand scheme of life. Maybe church, consider for a moment how you use social media in your life. Is, there, is the way you use social media allowing you to have more conversations that are gospel-centered with people or is it turning people off from the message of the gospel? In our spirit, in our age, we are too quickly to offend. We almost wear offending others as a badge of honor. I mean, you look at, I mean, people boast about being blocked on Twitter by other people. You go on YouTube and you just see videos upon videos of people saying, watch this video of this guy dismantling this other person or demolishing this other person in an argument, which shows no actual value to that person as a human being. We are too quickly to offend. Church, if your desire, a desire to offend is not a sign of courage. It's not. A desire to offend is the absence of maturity. So, we, as God's people, we have to look different in all areas of life from the rest of the world so that they might not dismiss or discredit the message that we have held so closely to. So Paul is so determined that the people cannot discredit his message. He's, he's not concerned with his personal reputation. He's concerned with his ministry. The front line of his ministry is his life of integrity. And I'm gonna say this, your life, the greatest thing that people can use to discredit your message is your life. And on the flip side, a spirit-empowered life of integrity allows all the, the, the stones and things that people throw at you just to fall off. They cannot but look and see the truthfulness of your message when it's led to a transforming life. So not only did Paul avoid things that would become barriers to people becoming reconciled with God, now he's about to commend himself. This is the first time God's, uh, Paul is about to, to say why his, his ministry is praiseworthy. But the ways that his ministry is praiseworthy is going to be a surprise, I'm sure, to some of you, and I'm sure it was a huge surprise to the recipients of this letter at the time. So verse four, he said, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves. We are praising ourselves in every way by great endurance. So all that Paul is about to explain, all that Paul is about, the list that Paul gives for why his ministry is praiseworthy is all under this header of endurance. That Paul is about to endure something in instances that were costly to him. He's going to offer a countercultural picture of Christian ministry, one that follows in step with the suffering servant. And what he's going to show us is that doing the work of ministry is costly on many, many levels. Maybe you've received that cost. Maybe you've, it's cost you relationships. Maybe it's cost you jobs. Maybe it's cost you comfort. But when we step out in faith, in obedience to do the work of the ministry, it costs you something. 
And it's this very fact that the ministry costs him something and the fact that he intentionally stepped into it and endured and didn't find a way out is actual proof of the fact that his ministry is the real deal. Because our natural inclination is to remove discomfort from our life. But Paul sat under all of these things in order to prove that God's stamp of approval was on his ministry and the message that he preached. But the reason he lays out this list, this counter-cultural list, is because the false teachers at the time, again, were communicating to people that how can this man who suffered so much, who looks so weak, be appointed by God? Wouldn't his life look more victorious? Wouldn't his life look more noteworthy? And this line of thinking can become our line of thinking. It's easy to think that on the other side of of obedience, there's always prosperity and comfort. But I'm sure if you've walked with Jesus for some time, you've recognized that most likely when we take measured steps of obedience, it's not met with comfort and prosperity. It's met with a cost. And this is what Paul is going to demonstrate for us that the very fact that he willingly endured these hardships is proof that he is the real deal. So in this verse, there's nine hardships that he experienced. We're gonna break them down into three categories. The first category is just general hardships. He says, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships and calamities. So afflictions would be anything that he experienced that brought him great internal distress. On the other side, calamities and hardships were, or stressful situations that felt constraining, where it's so pressure cooked that you're looked for a way out, but you can never find the way out. So all three of these things taken together present a multifaceted picture of a stressful situation that Paul has stepped into. His ministry was that of a pressure cooker. And now he moves from general hardships to specific hardships here. And these specific hardships will put under the category of persecution. That these things that Paul experienced at this point are because of people who are persecuting him on the hands of other people. He says, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. If you've read the account of Paul's life and the early church in the book of Acts, these things would not come out of surprise. When Luke records the the birth of the early church, we see riots and beatings and and persecution of all levels throughout there. And this is just one moment where Paul mentions that. And then lastly, this last group, this last group of three, we're gonna call voluntary wounds. That these are things that Paul, out of a love in his heart, out of a desire to minister, took upon himself. He took these wounds upon himself because his love far outweighed the cost of these things. These, these other three are, it says, sleepless nights, hunger, or first one, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. That all of these three communicate a man who has poured his life out for ministry. That he's given everything he has to this church and to the work of the ministry. This is a picture of Paul that demonstrates his faithfulness and his deep love for the church. And these are some of the reasons why people were discrediting him because this looks like a weak picture of Paul. Someone who's beaten, someone who's exhausted, someone who skips meals, 
all of these different things. But one of the, the greatest joys that I have at this moment in my life right now is the fact that I get to go home and I get to see my wife pour herself out daily for my sons. That there's not a day where I come home and I don't see an uneaten plate of food on the counter because she wasn't able to get to it because she was caring deeply for one of my sons or both of my sons. My wife has lost countless nights of sleep. She's missed many meals. She's experienced pain on many levels. But when I come home, I don't see weakness. I see an unrivaled strength and unparalleled love that my wife has for her boys. And in the same measure, when we see Paul in this picture, a bloodied up, an exhausted Paul, one that's experienced beatings, a sleepless nights, hunger, we shouldn't view that as weakness, we should view that as strength. That he would endure that out of the sake of love for the people in his life. It's the paradox that strength is displayed through our weaknesses that we're gonna see all throughout this book. And so now Paul moves from his hardships, these external circumstances, to his character and the manner in which he ministered. And this is really, if, we're, if I was about to say where Paul's argument comes to a head, this is really where the proof of Paul being the real deal, the authentic minister comes to a point. And this, um, it's not just the fact that Paul endured great hardships. A lot of us have to endure hard things in life. It's the manner in which he endured these hardships that speak of volume to his ministry and to his life. Because I think we'd all agree that it is possible to go through hardships and do it wrongly, right? That we can go through a hardship and be self and just be dripping with self-righteousness about it. For instance, maybe you're going through a hardship right now and you're just looking around at every people and be like, they don't understand what I'm going through. They couldn't handle what I'm going through. Why don't they, why don't they offer help more? And you become, become resentful and bitter towards other people because of the hardship that you're sitting under. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you look inwardly and be like, I'm proud. Like I'm enduring pretty well. This, this person over here couldn't endure what I'm enduring. If they had the, the load that I had on me, then they wouldn't be at looking as good as I do right now. You see, all these things, this endurance, these pressures, these hardships, they bring out something out of us. And a lot of times it doesn't bring out the fruits of the spirit, at least in my life. It oftentimes it brings out bitterness and resentment and joylessness. But in Paul, we're going to see what it brings out of him. And what brings out of him is all the more validates who Paul is and his message and what he's saying to be true. So church, how, do, how you and I respond and steward hardships in our life will either validate or invalidate the gospel that we hold. How you and I respond to hardships in our life either validates or invalidates our gospel message. So let's look at how Paul responds. Look at the character that comes out of Paul as he endures these lists of things. It says, by purity, 
that throughout hardships, Paul was pure, he was guiltless. He didn't use hardships as an excuse to self-indulge or to lower the level of integrity in his life. That he was guiltless. You couldn't nail anything on Paul, that he was pure all the way through in his motives and in his integrity. He didn't give himself a free pass. Not only was Paul pure, he, he, he experienced knowledge or understanding. That there's something that Paul learned about God in his life in the transforming work of the spirit through this suffering that he would have not learned elsewhere otherwise. And I'm sure the same is true for you that you've gone through hardships and you've learned things about God that are true about God that you would probably wouldn't have learned if you didn't go through that. So Paul, uh, a level of knowledge comes out of Paul as he experiences these hardships. Next, patience and kindness. Patience is reactive. It's how you respond to the circumstances in your life. Kindness is proactive. It's, it's how you intentionally do good things for others out of goodwill in your heart. One of the things of many, many things that Camille and I pray for our sons is that our sons would be kind. We pray that our sons would be kind because we think that in today's world, there's not a more countercultural characteristic in your life than being kind. In a world that shouts at each other, in a world that is angry with each other, a world that treats people as lesser, being kind, I think, will speak volumes in a way that no other character quality would. That people would, because my sons were kind, they would ask, why? And they would be able to point them, our prayer is to the kindness of God in their life. But before we begin to, to see like maybe you're, you, just, you just read this list or you're listening to this list and you're like, how this is it even possible? I can't even do this when I'm not experiencing hardships. But before you think that Paul is just some superhuman person, that he white knuckled it through all of this, he gives us the source of his character and the source of his ministry. It's right there in the middle. It says, in the Holy Spirit. That the reason Paul was able to, to respond in the ways that he did is because his heart has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. That he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit to endure what he was experiencing. And it's this Holy Spirit that then um, leads him into the manner in which he ministered. So the first part of this verse consisted of his character. Now Paul is going to display, here's how I ministered. Here's what has characterized my ministry to you. He says, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God. The heart of all Christian ministry is love. Unfiltered, unconditional, one-way love. That all of what Paul has done has been motivated out of his desire to love those in his life. It hasn't been motivated for his own name. It hasn't been motivated for him to be famous or rich or well-known, he did this all because he was the recipient of a great love, the recipient of Christ's love where Christ poured his life out for Paul and for us. And now as a recipient of that love, Paul now pours out that love to other people. And one aspect of love is that we tell the truth, that Paul's ministry was marked by truthful speech. He didn't back down when hardships came. He didn't back down from persecution. He loved, but he spoke the truth in love. 
that this word of truth, the gospel message that Paul at every, every opportunity spoke this message regardless of what it might cost him because he believed it was worth it. And then before we begin to think that this is all because of Paul, we see that he did all of this through the power of God. That this is Paul as a conduit of God, God working his power through Paul was able to accomplish these things in his life. And then he continues on and says, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That this imputed righteousness that Paul received when Jesus died in his place has now equipped him for the work of the ministry and has equipped you if you are in right standing with God as well. The way that you and I respond to hardships and persecutions will either be the greatest reason why people in our life consider the gospel or dismiss the gospel. So oddly enough, when you have twins, you actually have a lot of time to like listen to podcasts and books because you're up holding two babies or one baby in the middle of the night. And so you usually throw in headphones because one, you need to protect your eardrum because they can scream like super loud. And then on the other hand, you're like, I'm gonna make this time productive. And so there's a book that I've been trying to get around to reading and listening to, and I finally did. And it's called The Insanity of God. And there were moments, this whole book, The Insanity of God, is about a missionary who goes and interviews persecuted Christians all around the world to try to understand what they've experienced, how the gospel is growing in these, these countries where the, the gospel is persecuted, where people are losing their life or going to jail, experiencing hardships, all because they claim the name of Jesus. And so he goes and it's just stories upon stories of persecuted Christians sharing in a, um, their experience of what it means to follow Christ. And there's many stories that stopped me in my trap, but there's one of this man. He was in prison for seven years because of his faith. And every single day, there's prison guard did unspeakable things to him. He was persecuted in ways that I can't even speak of. Every single day for seven years, this persecuted, this a prisoner or a prison guard came to this man and beat him and did things to him that you would never imagine. All because he claimed the name of Jesus. Fast forward a little bit, this, a woman, after this man's out of jail, this woman comes to the man because he has a medical background and says, my husband is ill, he is dying, can you please come? I know you're a Christian, I don't care. Can you please come and mend my husband back to health? And he accepts and he goes to her, her home, opens up the door and sees unconscious on the couch, the man that has abused him and beat him for seven years straight. And he had a choice in that moment. He had a choice. He could, he could walk away and this man would die and he could get his revenge or he could display the patience and the kindness and the resolve of a follower of Christ. So every day he came back to this house and mended this man back to health. He prayed over them. The man that has done unspeakable pain to his life and through his kindness, not through his words, not through shouting, but through his kindness and his patience, this man and her, his whole family came to trust in Jesus Christ. This is what Christian ministry looks like. It's patient, it's kind, it's long suffering with people. But that doesn't answer the question, is it worth it? What makes all of the sacrifice worth it? 
On the surface, it makes no sense for this man to mend back to health his abuser. On the surface, it makes no sense for Paul to endure what he endured the way that he did. What makes it all worth it? And I think we see what makes it worth it here in the final verses of this chapter. The realities that Paul is going to introduce in these next three verses provide us the question, the answer to that question. But to see the answer, you have to put on the lens of faith. That it requires us to disbelieve what we perceive with our eyes and to bring to mind spiritual truths and reality and speak those truths into our hearts. It, remi- it requires us to look at the value systems of the day and to discard those and accept a backwards, upside down value system of the way of Jesus. All of these require faith. So let's look at what Paul states as a reason or the source of why all of this is worth it. What gets Paul through these enduring times? He says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Guys, Paul is unfazed by the opinions of others. This is a radical statement in this day and age because in this culture, there's nothing more valuable than honor and achievement. And Paul's looking at it and said, even if I was honored or dishonored or slandered or praised, it means nothing because I have something that is worth far more than what this world has to offer. That none of it matters. And so what follows this is going to be seven contrasting statements. At the first, the beginning of each statement is what, how the world perceives Paul and his ministry. What his ministry looks like on the surface from, with worldly eyes. The second part of these statements is how triumphant Paul really is of these spiritual realities that have anchored Paul and can anchor you as well. And if you need encouragement, these words right here have served as a great encouragement for me this week and I hope it does for you too. So we're actually, for the the sake of just feeling the power of these words, we're gonna read them all together at once. I don't follow, we're just gonna read them all. You don't have to read with me. Um, It says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul can say that he possesses everything because he possesses Christ Jesus. Because Paul possesses Christ, he is okay with being unknown and discredited by the world because he knows that he is intimately known by God. Because Paul possesses Christ, he can endure situations in life that feel like death, that look like there's no escape because there is a God who has stood in his place, who did not escape death, but took death on willingly to die in his place. Because Paul possesses Christ, he knows that there is no punishment left for him so that everything he experiences in this life, whether good or hardships or imprisonment or persecution is being used by God to shape him, not to punish him, to turn him into the man that he's called him to be. Because Paul possesses Christ, he can have a joy that is untouchable despite the circumstances in his life. He is always rejoicing, even though on the surface it looks sorrowful. 
Because Paul possesses Christ, he is content with using all that he has, all the resources at his fingertips and pouring it out for the sake of others so that they might know the riches of Christ. He can do this because Christ himself, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Because Paul possesses Christ, he can own nothing of earthly value because he knows that Christ has prepared an inheritance for him that cannot be touched by anything, that cannot rot away, that cannot rust. Because Paul possesses Christ, he can lose everything because he already has everything worth having. Church, obedience to Christ will always be costly. It will always cost you something. But take heart because you possess the greatest treasure imaginable. You possess the living, reigning Christ. And nothing from this life can touch that or take that away from you. So live freely, church. Live countercultural. Just move away and uh, throw away the value system of the day and live in such a way that people, when they look at your life, they want to know the message that you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it shapes us, that it grows us, that it speaks hard things. God, I pray just at this moment right now that as people are thinking about what they just heard, I pray that you would move them to action. I pray that you would bring to mind steps of obedience that they need to take, even though they might be costly. And I pray that in the midst of the cost, I pray that you would remind them that it's worth it. I pray that above else, you would allow this text to move our hearts to treasure you in a way that we did not treasure before. That after seeing the reality of Paul, what he endured for the sake of ministry, that we, by your spirit, would move us to make those same sacrifices so that those who have not heard the good news of the Christ might hear and receive this gospel. So God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, just allow our hearts to be drawn to you in this time as we respond in worship, that we would sing loudly because you are the victorious reigning king. Probably these things in Christ's name, amen.